Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, it's time for us to get into your word and continue on in our series in Genesis. And I pray, God, for eager hearts, uh, hungry souls that want to feed upon this spiritual meal that you have provided for us through the text today. And I pray, Lord, it will be a apt and um, edifying time, uh, especially as we lead into our observance of your table, uh, the precious ordinance of communion. And so I pray, God, that we have not uh, come to church this morning with neglectful or careless or, um, God forbid it, uh, undealt with sin. And um, even as we hear your word, God, I pray that our minds have been uncluttered and our hearts have been open uh, to receive what you have to give to us today. So thank you, God, for everyone that you brought to church today and for those listening on the live stream who are unable to be here. We pray much blessing and grace and truth and love through the preaching of your word today. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, let's turn in our Bibles to Genesis chapter 9. It's always good to have our copy of God's Word with us and open up the Word so that we can see it. The words are on the screen. Uh, The verses are typically on the screen uh, as we read them, but it's good to have our own Bibles as well. And as you're turning there, uh, yesterday we had uh, Men of the Word, which is our men's fellowship time, and uh, we had a wonderful lesson about being sensible from Titus chapter 2. And to be sensible is, is to be sober-minded, to have sound judgment, to have clear thinking, and to be self-controlled. Uh, I'm going to just kind of summarize what that means. And so it was a wonderful lesson. And um, something I was thinking about afterwards is uh, as we talked about men's issues, uh, as we do in application and in our discussion time um, around the table as men, and certain things came up, uh, what what would compel us as men, as people of God, to want to obey God's command, for example, to be sensible, to be clear-thinking, to be of sound judgment and sober-minded? Well, through our Sunday sermons, folks, uh, I always want it uh, for you and for me to gain a greater sense of who God is uh, every time we hear a sermon. And so it doesn't matter what the text is, but in particular, sometimes Old Testament narrative, uh, it seems um, not very applicable. But hopefully we've made some proper applications. But it starts with our understanding and knowledge of who God is. And so we want to let that stir our affections for him and therefore compel us to love him more and therefore allow us to obey him more closely. So from today's text, I want us to see God's priorities, what God values. Um, We're going to see his faithfulness once again. I think that's been a running theme throughout this time of uh, catastrophe, the flood. Uh, Also, God's graciousness is part of it. And um, from today's text, uh, God's blessings are universal in scope. It's not just for Noah. It's not just for his sons. It's to all mankind. Hey, this is, it's not even just to Israel, because the text today is before, way before Moses' time and Israel's time. So this pertains to all men and women in any era, any age, any dispensation, so to speak, including ours. Okay, so my goal, our goal today is appreciation for God and conformity to what he's like, And then obedience in the end. All right, so our text is Genesis 9, verses 1 through 7. If you will stand as we read God's word, that will be wonderful. Genesis 9, verses 1 through 7. As we continue, catastrophe. This is entitled, A New Beginning. 
And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the terror of you will be on every beast of the earth and on every bird of the sky, with everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are given. Every moving thing that is alive shall be food for you. I give all to you as I gave the green plant. Only you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. Surely I will require your lifeblood. From every beast I will require it. And from every man, from every man's brother, I will require the life of man. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made man. As for you, be fruitful and multiply. Populate the earth abundantly and multiply in it. Please be seated. Our theme today, which is in your, in your bulletin and on the screen behind me, is that God blesses mankind with provision and protection in the new world where sin and corruption will soon abound again. And we're going to see what God says, his words. We're going to see God's actions. And God's words and God's actions reflect his character. We're going to see what God is like once again in our passage. So it begins with God's blessing. And um, this is kind of like the opening intro point. Uh, God's blessing is, is the creation mandate. We see it in verse 1 and verse 7. Okay, verse 1 and verse 7 is like the bread of the sandwich of this passage today. It begins, you might have noticed when I read, he blessed Noah and his sons, and he said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. What does he say in verse 7? As for you, be fruitful and multiply, populate the earth abundantly and multiply in it. Okay, this passage has this uh, chiastic structure, okay, A, B, C, B, A. So the A's are what I just read to you, verses 1 and 7. It says the same thing. And verses 2 and 3 kind of correlate with verses 5 and 6. And verse 4 is right in the middle of that sandwich. Okay? So um, let's look at the, the first verses here. Um, it calls to mind the previous passage, uh, the end of chapter 8, where we saw that God promised Noah to never again curse the ground and to destroy every living thing as he had done via the flood, okay, even though man's heart is still sinful, right? nothing changed after the flood. Man is still depraved. But God says the seasons, the days, the weather will continue on while the earth remains. Right? Verse 22, he says, While the earth remains, sea time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter and day and night shall not cease. Thanks be to God for his uncommon grace. A great is his faithfulness. And with that, God blesses Noah and his sons, speaking to them all here. Notice, he says to Noah and his sons in verse 1 of chapter 9, notice that his blessing is in the form of a command. Verse 1, verse 7, both. Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth abundantly. Okay, basically, God is saying, I bless you with res the responsibility and privilege of repopulating the earth. Okay, procreate, propagate, and prosper in this mandate, in this commission that I'm giving to you. Make many children. Increase in number. I bless you with this command. And this calls to mind the original creation mandate, right? which God told Adam and Eve, Genesis 1.28. Almost same exact words. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So that was a blessing in the beginning, and now it's a blessing to Noah and his sons as they repopulate the earth because there's only eight people on the earth now, right? And so in actuality, it seems that only his sons are technically going to be a part of this, right? Uh, the text doesn't say that Noah has any other children. So it would be through his three sons that the earth would be filled. And God wants them to produce and be prolific, so just a quick implication, application, before we get to our, our points. Um, what does God value here? 
God values human beings. He values marriage. He values family. Marriage. Okay, this is the, under the assumption that it is um, reproduction and the bearing fruit of children will happen in the context of marriage. One man, one woman, one flesh, sacred union. Okay, the beginning of a family, it starts with the marriage relationship. And so as part of God's blessing on marriage to have physical intimacy as husband and wife. Okay? Not sex before marriage, not sex outside of marriage. God blessed us with a gift to be had between husbands and wives, and that would be the way to reproduce and receive the gift of children. I have a text group uh, with my pastor brothers who I graduated with seminary um, years ago. And um, just uh, recently we sent updated pictures of our families uh, just to make sure we remember what everybody looks like and the growing children and everything. One of my brothers, his name is Will Costello, dear brother of mine, uh, he has seven children. And um, one of the the other pastor brothers commented in the the thread, Congratulations on your church plant, Brother Will. And uh, it was funny because Will didn't actually get the joke. He thought he was talking about his actual church plant that he was uh, doing. But anyway, children are a gift from the Lord to be cherished and valued. Psalm 127, Psalm 128. God values children. And I just want to use this time as a reminder, especially to our ladies, but to our men as well. Ladies, don't let the culture brainwash you into thinking that your career, your job, your goals, personal goals are more valuable than the blessing of being a wife and mother responsible for taking care of your home and your family. The family, two-parent home, one husband, one wife, is the foundation of society as God designed it. Becoming a godly, strong, faithful wife and mom who serves her husband and kids and the church family and the community is what God calls Christian women to prioritize. And so let us be reminded today, especially our dear ladies, but our men who are shepherding, discipling, encouraging the women, pouring yourself, ladies, into supporting your husband and family, sacrificing your time and energy and your very life into raising your children in the gospel of Jesus Christ is, I would say, the highest calling, the highest of callings. Right? It's debatable which is the highest calling. But to me, it's, it's, um, it's up there, okay? way up there. Don't let the world turn you into a mindless sheep who just follows what they say should be important to you. Rather, Follow what God says should be your priority in life. So, knowing that mankind is going to face certain threats and dangers in this new world, where sin and corruption will soon abound again, God faithfully blesses man with certain new provisions and protections, as well as an important prohibition. Okay, so we're going to take the points into, uh, in that order. We're going we're to talk about God's provision and then his protection. And then the last point is going to be his prohibition, which is um, going to lead us into our, our time at the Lord's table. All right? So the first blessing from God, his provision, is uh, animals are given for food. Animals given for food. That's your blank in your bulletin there. It says in verse 2 and 3, The fear of you and the terror of you will be on every beast of the earth and on every bird of the sky. Everything that creeps on the ground, all the fish into your hand they are given. Every moving thing that is alive shall be food for you. I give all to you as I gave the green plant. There's going to be a number of changes from the pre-flood era, um, which seems to be part of the way God blesses humankind in the post-flood era or the post-flood dispensation. Apparently, whatever harmonious order there was between animals and human beings uh, before the flood will no longer be the case. Now, animals will dread humans, it says, in fear and terror of them. 
Um, you ever wonder why you can't just go up and pet a wild animal? Hey, whether it be a bird or a rabbit or a raccoon or a deer, they tend to take off if you get too close, right? And most of the time, if you don't bother animals, they won't bother you. Um, but they don't like you to get too close to them. And it's because God instilled in them a fear and dread of human beings. And this was part of the blessing for man in that animals would not threaten human life, the human family. But the further blessing is in the provision of food. The post-flood menu has changed. God now gives every animal on the land, in the sky, in the sea, to man to be food for us. Before the flood, God gave man what? Genesis 1, verse 30. He gave man every plant, every green plant for food. Genesis 1, 30. Man apparently was vegetarian all this time. I don't know if some people disobeyed or not, but I think this was the, the general thing. So fruits, vegetables, plants, nuts, seeds, etc. was the menu. Plenty of variety there. But now the menu exponentially expands. And the meat lovers among us say, thank you, Lord. Right? Um, But notice here that that God gave no laws here in Genesis chapter 9 against eating certain types of animals yet. He says, every moving thing that is alive shall be food for you. I give all to you. It's total inclusion. Everything is permitted. But it wasn't until Moses' time, right, roughly a thousand years later, that God declared certain animals clean and others unclean for eating. And you remember just uh, the animals that Noah took on the ark, right? There was already that distinction between clean and unclean, but that was for sacrifices, not talking about for food. So when we get to Moses' time, God gives them dietary laws. Right? You shall not eat certain types of animals. They're unclean. You shall eat these types. They are clean. Why did he give those kinds of laws to the people of Israel? Well, it's to separate them from the heathen people around them. There wasn't and isn't anything necessarily unclean about certain animals, whether they be pigs or shellfish or owls or whatever. But God was teaching the Israelites to live separate from their pagan neighbors. He's setting them apart to be different from them and to set them unto himself as God. So when you look ahead to the New Testament, um, those Old Testament dietary laws to Israel were once again abolished in Acts chapter 10, right? Where God tells Peter that the menu has changed once more. So Acts chapter 10, if you want to turn there, you can. I'm just going to read this passage here. Acts 10 verses 9 through 17. Here's the story. This is after Jesus dies. He's crucified. He's buried. He rises again. He goes up to heaven And then the Holy Spirit is sent, and the church begins. And Acts chapter 10, verse 9, says, On the next day, as they were on their way and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. But he became hungry and was desiring to eat. But while they were making preparations, he fell into a trance. And he saw the sky opened up, and an object like a great sheet coming down, lowered by four corners to the ground, And there were in it all kinds of four-footed animals and crawling creatures of the earth and birds of the air. And a voice came to him, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything unholy and unclean. Again a voice came to him a second time, What God has cleansed, no longer consider unholy. This happened three times And immediately the object was taken up into the sky. Verse 17, Now while Peter was greatly perplexed in mind as to what the vision which he had seen might be, behold, the men who had been sent by Cornelius, having asked directions for Simon's house, appeared at the gate. So God has Peter meet 
a God-fearing Gentile man named Cornelius. And Jewish law taught that a Jew should not associate with a lowly pagan Gentile. But Peter realizes that God did not only change the menu for believers, but God also changes men. He declares through this meeting with Cornelius that Gentiles who believe the gospel are also cleansed by Christ's blood, just like Jews. So here's Peter's conclusion in verse 28 of chapter 10. And he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a man who is a Jew to associate with a foreigner or to visit him. And yet God has shown me that I should not call any man unholy or unclean. That is why I came without even raising any objection when I was sent for. So I ask for what reason you have sent for me. And then he says in verse 34, after Cornelius explains what happened and what God told him to do. Verse 34, opening his mouth, Peter said, I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality. But in every nation, the man who fears him and does what is right is welcome to him. So the gospel call is for everyone, for the whole world, for them to come to Christ. And the lesson to Peter and and to us, uh, just from this part of it, is that the calling of the church is to unity in Christ and the gospel. God provides blessing toward this unity in removing those Old Testament laws about what we are to eat and not to eat, dietary restrictions, right? Jews can eat any animals now, as can Gentiles, Jewish Christians, right? Those who believe. There's nothing to hinder fellowship between Jews and Gentiles, between anyone. So they can now enjoy all foods together. It makes it possible for them to break bread and have fellowship and spend time together without those previous restrictions from before. And so um, so hopefully that's encouraging and enlightening to us, uh, just this whole thing. God cares about our, our daily bread, right, our day-to-day, and he, he provides instructions on all that. But I do want to get a little more practical for us as I consider our faithful, dear, beloved Faith Bible Church family. I want to talk a little bit about health and stewardship. Um, God has blessed us, as we've seen, with everything to eat. No types of animals are off limits. No types of vegetables that we cannot eat. All are available to us. I don't recommend those kind of wild mushrooms that will kill you. But um, what a good gift from God. Appreciate what God has given to us. Especially here in Southern California. Not all areas of the country are like Southern California. I talk to my friends who are in Michigan and um, just in, in Ohio and in Kansas, the Midwest, uh, the, the, the helpings and the, the variety and the, the goodness is, is not quite as abundant over there. Um, we're so blessed with such a mixed bag here in Southern California. But let's not turn this blessing into a curse. Uh, the sin of gluttony, a lack of self-control, the lust of the flesh, I think it's a good reminder for us today, as God has given us such amazing blessing, even in food. Proverbs twenty-five sixteen says, Have you found honey? Eat only what you need, that you not have it in excess, and vomit it. Proverbs twenty-five sixteen. Honey, honey, by the way, is commended in the Bible as good food. Yet the warning here is of too much of a good thing. Right? It's, it's, it's not good. God has given us good, blessed things, but cautions against excess. Don't abuse it. And um, as I get older, just as I turned 40 and then turned 50, and now I'm approaching my mid-50s, uh, the unfortunate thing is junk food tastes better after you turn a certain age. Like McDonald's fries, they, they've never tasted better to me. Um, and yet, this is, this is the case. Proverbs 23, verses 1 to 3, verses 19 to 21, we could go on. But um, 1 Corinthians 9, if you're not yet uh, convicted, uh, 1 Corinthians 9 is helpful. The Apostle Paul 
writes in verse 24, Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Therefore, I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air, verse 27, but I discipline my body. I buffet my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. So we must not let food rule over us. We rule over food. Otherwise, we're in danger of committing the sin of idolatry. Okay, we rule over our stomach, our appetites, our flesh. We have to, I have to sometimes say to my stomach, hey, you don't control me, I control you. Right? Titus 1 verse 8, it says that elders, so this is speaking more directly to me and Pastor Bill, elders, we're to be self-controlled. And that's in all areas. And um, there's no escape for, for you other Christians either. Galatians 5, 22, 23, right? Fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, etc. Last one, verse 23, self-control. So I want to encourage you by just imparting that, that there's wisdom in maintaining a healthy physical life. It even could be an expression of our love for other people, our, our family members, our children, our parents, our brothers, our sisters, our our spouses. Um, Dear people, sometimes our health issues, sometimes our health issues are self-imposed. It's due to daily choices we make uh, about what we consume. So just a a word of of, um, encouragement there. Uh, Taking care of my health as much as I can is a, a blessing Okay, rather than a burden to, to others, my wife, my family. Uh, others worry when we're unwell, right? Uh, they, they need to take care of you, which there's, there's blessing in, in service, okay? other people taking care of you. But um, just, just consider, consider that thought this morning. Um, our stewardship of our bodies is um, a way to glorify God with our bodies, as it says in 1 Corinthians 6. And it's an expression possibly, of our love for others. So I, I do want us to enjoy God's blessings. Everything that he's given to us is, is to be received and appreciated. We want to enjoy life and um, enjoy God's blessings to us, including food, but in moderation, if I can say that. And somebody once said, everything in moderation, even moderation, and therefore, it's good that I'm going to have Korean barbecue for lunch uh, today after church. All right, so as we transition into our next one, we see God's blessing in his provision. God's a providing God. What a wonderful character. He, he's given us all animals for food. And um, again, there's a stipulation to that, a prohibition, but we're going to get to that at the end. Okay, our second point next. Let's look at how else God blesses man in the post-flood era. By protection, his protection. He's a protecting God. And this is the sanctity of human life that we're going to bring out here from verses 5 and 6. The sanctity of human life. Sanctity means the state or quality of being holy or sacred. Hey, that's what we mean when we say the sanctity of human life, the separateness, the sacredness of it. Verse 5, surely, he says, I will require your lifeblood. From every beast I will require it. And from every man, from every man's brother, I will require the life of man. These are divine directives from God in this verse. It's in regards to human life. It's connected to verse 6. Okay, all life is precious, but human life must be treated with special care and caution. God demands an accounting, particularly for the taking of human life. Here's the literal translation of verse 5. Okay? And indeed, for your lifeblood, I will demand an accounting. From the hand of every animal, I will demand an accounting. And from the hand of man, from the hand of each person, his brother, I will demand an accounting 
for human life. Remember, before the flood, the people of the earth were characterized by unbridled violence, a wicked, evil, violent behavior. It filled the world, Genesis 6, verse 11 and 13. Murders were common. There was no regard for life. So God promises now the death penalty to anyone who would shed the blood of a human. Okay, man is allowed in the post-flood world to take the life of animals, as we've seen. Right? But for certain, they may not destroy a fellow person. He strictly forbids it. He demands an account from any person who would kill a fellow human being. Man is to be held responsible for that. Okay, this is the sanctity of human life. It's being stressed here. So this divine protection of human life is extended to the animal kingdom. Did you see that? He says, from every beast, I will require it. Require what? It's life. That is, any animal that kills a person must be put to death. That's what God requires. That's what he demands. And he also requires the life of a man who would take his fellow human's life, as I keep saying, right? The, the Net Bible translation of that part says, From each person, I will exact punishment for the life of the individual, since the man was his relative, his, his brother. So verse 6 continues, very straightforward. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed, for in the image of God he made man. Okay, God values human life. The timeless principle is that he holds human life to be sacred, valuable, precious, holy. Why is that? Because man is made in the image of God. See, man is different from the animals, from the beasts of the earth. No matter what the evolutionary quote-unquote science says, hey, the killing of a person destroys an image bearer of God. Taking of a human life is an offense against God, of which he requires the greatest justice. So God's protection of human life is expressed by this divine decree. Whoever kills a man should be put to death by man. A punishment is, is measure for measure for the crime that's committed. You've heard the Latin phrase, lex talionis, right? It means the punishment must fit the crime. In this case, life for life. God so values human life that in order to discourage and diminish and decrease killing in this new era of the world, he tells Noah, you must enact the greatest penalty for anyone who would dare kill a person. That, that greatest pen penalty is their own life. This is capital punishment, okay, the death penalty. It's, it's a biblical principle found right here in Genesis. Right? Are, are you for, are you against capital punishment? It's clear that God is for it. He's the one that instituted it. Notice that God holds humans responsible for enforcing this punishment. Hey, that's what he told Noah and his sons. And later, to Israel, he would make that a, a formal law, capital punishment. Leviticus 24, verse 17. Mankind is to be the instrument by which God's law is, is going to be applied. So for us today, in our day and age, in our dispensation, it would be the government's duty to uphold righteousness and justice. Listen to Romans 13, verse 4. It says, Government is a minister of God to you for your good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid. For it, government, does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister, a servant of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. In other words, it is right for the government, which receives its authority from God, to punish the evildoer and to protect the innocent. God is the one who instituted capital punishment. Because he values human life, this is his protection over it. 
Pastor Kent Hughes writes, quote, To argue against the death penalty on humane grounds is to argue against God's word. It exists precisely because of God's humane concerns. To ignore it is to despise life, end quote. And just a, a quick note here. Uh, in case anyone is confused about the difference between murder and the taking of life. Because you might have noticed if you read the Bible um, that some killing is endorsed in the Bible. Uh, for example, God commanded Joshua and the soon-to-be Israelites to take over the promised land um, by wiping out the, the Canaanites who were living in the land. And the Israelites were to be God's instrument of justice against those monstrously wicked, sinful people. And it wasn't because the Israelites were righteous, good, moral people. They were stubborn and stiff-necked and rebellious people, just like the Canaanites, but this was God's time, this was God's plan, God's purpose. And he said that the Canaanites were now to be destroyed. The Israelites were to be used of God to take them out. Their time of judgment had come. But then he, what does he tell the Israelites, the sixth commandment in Exodus 20, verse 13? Thou shalt not what? Murder. So um, John Piper is helpful here. He says the word for kill in Exodus 20, verse 13, thou shalt not kill, is the Hebrew word rahaz. It is used 43 times in the Old Testament. It always means violent personal killing that is actually murder, or is accused of as murder. It is never used of killing in war or of killing in judicial execution, like the government killing a, 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 a guilty criminal. Rather, a clear distinction is preserved between legal putting to death and illegal murder. So, for example, Numbers 35, verse 19, right in the same very verse, same sentence, it says... The murderer shall certainly be put to death. So the word murderer comes from that word rahaz, right? Which is forbidden in the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not murder, thou shalt not kill. But the word put to death is a different Hebrew word. It's a general word that can describe legal executions. So the murderer, the one who kills against God's law, shall be legally put to death. And again, this is God's protection because he so values human life. So I hope that helps anybody who's, who might have had that question. The Bible is clear. God makes a distinction between legal putting to death, which he commands, and murder, which he says, thou shalt not. Okay, the unlawful, premeditated, immoral killing of another person, never. And so why are Christians so against abortion? Why are we pro-life? Well, it's not because we decided to become conservative Republicans, right? When I became a Christian 25 years ago, just rabidly, just almost anarchistic um, and, and, you know, way out there liberal, uh, when I got saved, I didn't decide, well, you know, I think I'll become a Republican all of a sudden. No, it's because abortion is the killing of an unborn child in the mother's womb. And because we value what God values, because we hold precious what God holds to be precious, which is human life, that's why we're pro-life. Human persons made in the image of God, that's what babies are in the womb and outside of the womb. And so, to close these blessings from God in verse 7, verse 7, the, the other side of the bread sandwich here, he says, as for you, be fruitful and multiply, populate the earth abundantly and multiply in it. Okay? Another way to think about that is this. God wants us to be life givers, not life takers. Procreate, 
be prolific, propagate life, be for life, prosper in this blessing from God to be life givers, givers and makers of life. So lastly, as we've considered God's faithful blessings upon mankind, his provision of animals for food, his protection of human life via capital punishment, in the center of this passage, verse 4, God reveals how much, again, he values human life and life altogether. He gives this important prohibition to man. This important prohibition to man. That's your last blank there, or middle blank in your outline there. And it's, don't eat the blood, verse 4. Verse 4 of Genesis 9. He says, Only you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. Interestingly, like the blessing that God gave to Adam and Eve in the garden, remember what he said? From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, lavishly, abundantly, generously, eat from any tree of the garden, he said, except for one, right, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Here in Genesis 9, God tells Noah, any and every animal is food for you to eat, but there's one stipulation, right? God says not to eat animals alive. Don't eat animals while it's still alive. Don't eat its flesh with its blood. Implicit in this command is don't consume animal blood. Don't eat it. Don't drink it. Again, to quote Another pastor, he says, Humans are not to devour animals the way animals devour one another while the blood is pulsing in the flesh. The reason for this is respect for life. And beyond that, respect for the giver of life, God himself, end quote. And this prohibition extends until today. Like I said, these, these principles, these commands are universal in scope. They're not just to Noah and his sons. They're not just to Israel. They're, they're universal. They, they're to all of us. And so, again, why is that? Why, why should they not consume the blood? Why should they not eat an animal that's still alive? Because blood is equated with life. It's called life blood here. It was representative of the life force. It's the source of life as God has designed our, our, our lives, our bodies. This is what God is teaching and instilling in mankind here. Later to the nation of Israel in Leviticus 7 and Leviticus 17. I'm not going to go there, but this rule is repeated, which demonstrates its importance. Commentator John Curid says this, quote, The Hebrews believed that blood is the source of life and the means by which life is perpetuated. To remove blood is to terminate life. Blood is thus understood to be distinct and unique from other parts of animals, The setting apart of the blood of an animal may also stem from the belief that it is principally used for the purpose of expiation and atonement. It is too sacred to be eaten by mankind, end quote. And this kind of leads us to our concluding thoughts here and into our time at the Lord's table. Uh, Listen to Leviticus 17, verses 10 and 11. Leviticus 17, 10, 11 says, And any man from the house of Israel or from the aliens, the foreigners who sojourn among them, who eats any blood, God says, I will set my face against that person who eats blood and will cut him off from among his people. Sounds pretty serious, right? Well, it is. This is part of being holy. So why, why, why such a serious consequence? He says in verse 11, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. Blood has been given a special purpose by God. It represents the life of the animal here. And this was the picture that God was using to his people over and over and over to teach them about the high cost of sin. Their sins cost blood, cost life. 
which, through the sacrificial system that God instituted for the nation of Israel, they would see over and over and over, day after day, week after week, month after month, year after bloody year. All that blood spilled on the altar of the sacrifices that they would make, graphically pictured the animal given as a substitute in the place of the offerer's life as a temporary atonement for their sins. That Old Testament sacrificial system, of course, ultimately points and paves the way for the Savior. Right? The promised seed, all the way back in Genesis 3, for him to come to earth and to die for the sins of mankind. He is to give up his life, pouring out his blood on the cross as a sacrifice, offering himself as the substitute to bear and take our sins on our behalf. I mean, this is the heart of the gospel. This is the reason why there's good news, because even God would come in the flesh and he would bear all our iniquities for us. And so John the Baptist exclaims in John 1.29, right? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So God blesses mankind with such provision and such protection. He's a providing God. He's a protecting God. He gives this prohibition also because as part of blessing, as part of valuing life, valuing human life, and particularly to give away so that we would not be saved for this life only, but for our eternal life to come. And this is what we've seen here in our, our text today, and it brings us to the Lord's table. Romans chapter 3 will help us get there, and I'll invite Joe Sr. to come. And um, Romans 3, verse 24, which is after the famous 23, right? For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Verse 24 says, Being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood, uh, a wrath-appeasing, God's wrath-satisfying satisfaction in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. Verse 26 says, For the demonstration of his righteousness at the present time, so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So what an incredible culmination it is uh, to to think about God's blessing, to think about the the menu change, to think about the hearts of man being changed, and it's all through the blood of our Lord and Savior Jesus. So let us take these truths um, into our time of communion together as we see God's character once again. And um, I pray that that we've we've just been um, just refreshed by seeing uh, all these different aspects of God's character and attributes and grow an appreciation for him that we might stir in our hearts more love and affection which would compel us to obey him more. Let's pray on that. Heavenly Father, I just want to take this time uh, before we observe your table to praise you. Praise you not just for all that you've blessed us with, but all that you are. You are a providing God who gives us all that we need and, and, and way beyond. When we think about just the, even the food that we're going to have for lunch or just this, this holiday season, all the blessings that we have and the special things that, that are part of it, uh, we want to we thank you for being such a providing, gracious, generous God. But help us, God, to, 
to not abuse it, and to not sin in that. Thank you that you're a protecting God, that you value human life, and so we want to protect and value human life, and that plays itself out in many different ways, not just to not kill people, but not to hate them in our hearts, and rather to love them with the love that you've given to us. That was especially expressed on the cross as Christ shed his blood for our sins so that we could be forgiven and not just receive the blessings of life here on this earth, but eternal life, the gift of knowing you and being with you. So God, as we approach your table today, I'd like to take a few moments and just consider our, our week, consider our, our Saturday night, consider our, our morning today, and um, just uh, take a moment, God, to come before you. And if there's any sin that needs to be forgiven, any, any transgressions to repent of, that we would just take that now, take time now to, to do that. Dear Lord, as we consider our sins, we're reminded of your word, just even of the old hymn, that your grace is greater than all our sins. And Jesus' blood washes away the one who comes to you in repentance and faith and believes upon Christ. Thank you that he has canceled the certificate of debt which was against us, which was hostile to us, and he's taken it away, having wiped it out on the cross. Thank you for that good news, God. I pray that we wouldn't take your grace for granted and rather that it would once again remind us of your great love toward us, which would motivate and fuel us to to greater obedience and a closer walk with you. For our blessing and for your glory, in Jesus' name, amen.